Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, discuss Joe Banz's interview with Ukrainian Minister for Digital Transformation Mikhailo Fedorov, and we welcome Kiev Independent reporter Francis Farrell back onto the podcast to talk about the Russian assault on Avdivka and the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 31st of October, one year and 248 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Kiev independent reporter Francis Farrell. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure, hi David, hi everybody. Not an awful lot today, but let's start down in Herzon. Ukraine forces continuing to hold their positions on the east bank of the river, the left bank, obviously in the predominantly Russian-held side of the region down there. So Russian sources have claimed that Ukraine's military control the town of Krynki, which is about 30 k's due east of Herzon, obviously across the river, and two kilometres or so ish away from the, the actual river itself. It wobbles around a bit. It's all quite marshy down there, but it is slightly back from the main river itself. One prominent Russian mill blogger, like I say, less, less unreliable than many of them, said that Ukrainian forces have marginally expanded their zone of control to the west of the town. And geolocated footage published yesterday confirmed Russian forces do hold positions in the forestry areas to the east of Krynki. Now, multiple Russian sources, including a Wagner Group affiliated channel, it has to be said, had been complaining about Russian forces' lack of counter-battery fire. So counter-battery is, is an artillery battery, the kind of building blocks of, of the infantry are called companies and in most militaries. And in the armour, it's called squadrons. And in artillery, you have batteries. So a battery of eight guns, for example, or however many, six or eight, in, typically in a, in a battery. Counter-battery fire is the ability to strike the enemy's guns. So you have radars that can work out the physics of where the where the shells are coming from and you fire back at them. So these Russian channels are complaining about the lack of 
Russian army, the Russian army's ability to do that counter-battery fire. Also complaining about the lack of electronic warfare, which is yeah, has a whole host of purposes, but it can mask what you're doing, it can interfere with what the enemy's doing, it can disrupt munitions in the air, missiles and so on and so forth, but it is a, a, a critical element. There's very few non-critical elements, to be perfectly honest, of the military these days, but electronic warfare is not just wiggly amps and listening into enemy communications, it does a lot more than that. And there also complaining about the lack of headquarters command and control capabilities. It's, there's no point having the you know, loads of troops and loads of kit and all the rest of it if you can't actually talk to it all, organise it all and get it to the right place at the right time. So they're having a big old moan about the Russian military down there, particularly around that area of Kerinke. However, Russian forces did continue airstrikes against the right bank, the West Bank, the bit held by Ukraine throughout Hezon yesterday. Ukraine's Southern Operational Command said Russian forces had used 37 laser-guided bombs to hit the West Bank of Hezon Oblast. The bombs they were talking about are old, but they work. Generally, laser has been around for a very long time. Laser beam riders, so laser as we all know, stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So basically you get the energy from that reflected laser return and then you, the missile, can steer yourself towards the the, the point where that radiated energy is coming from. So if you have a laser beam rider, which you can, the missile can send, either send itself or can be designated from the ground or another vehicle from the air and so on and so forth, the missile will home in on the where that laser dot is, is being aimed. Now, they will generally fly in a nice, smooth, parabolic curve to the from where they were launched to where they're going to land, especially the older ones, and therefore you can intercept them more easily, laser beam riders, but some of them can manoeuvre, the more modern ones, and they are difficult to, to interfere with because they are receiving the energy, that laser energy on a particular frequency which they can be programmed for. It's difficult to interfere with that and take them off off target by messing around with the laser beam so it is quite old technology but it works now elsewhere an odd story here russian investigators in eastern ukraine part of eastern ukraine that's currently controlled by moscow have detained two soldiers on suspicion of killing a family of nine people including two children a russian a statement by russia said that the soldiers were from a region in, in Russia's far east and that the reason for the murders appeared to be some kind of personal conflict. Now, the killings took place in Volnovaka, which is an industrial town between Donetsk and Melitopol. Russian media reported the murderers had used machine guns with silencers. Fine. No need to dwell on that one. But it's interesting because the Ukrainian prosecutor's office also issued a statement saying that they had begun investigating the crime. So Ukrainian human rights ombudsman Dmitry Lubinets suggested that they were, there were Chechen units involved that may have committed the murders with a suggestion that the family had refused to shelter Chechen forces in their house. So not entirely sure what's happened. Both sides have opened an investigation, but at the heart of it there's a, a family of nine people who were, who were murdered. And just finally, general staff of Ukraine's armed forces said today that the Russian military had lost, well, they said over 300,000. So they're now saying 300,810 personnel in combat. That is, we think they are counting them as dead or wounded to the point that they can no longer go back to the battlefield. Because, of course, you, you count casualties as dead, wounded, missing and captured. And if you are missing, you might turn up. If you're captured, you might be swapped. So you could then take a take part in hostilities again. But we think Ukraine is counting. The numbers they put out are dead and wounded to the point of not being able to 
directly participate in combat anymore in a physical means. I mean, even if you've lost limbs, you can take part as, as part of the military staff. But we think those numbers are kind of physical um, casualties. This is on top of the... We, they put out a stat last week, about 5,000 tanks. We spoke about that. just want to pause very briefly and, and focus on that 300,000. If it's... I mean, it's probably a little bit toppy, but just as a very, very large figure. And think about how the wars end. Now, we've spoken before that most wars end by negotiation, but they can do. Some, war, some wars end if one side's means to carry on are exhausted and, and therefore there's a total defeat. Think Germany in the Second World War. More likely it's because the aims are not achieved or not likely to be achieved in a time frame where the economic and the human cost is worth it. So in many ways, you can say that Putin has already lost this war because his aim of subjugating the entire country, taking Kiev in three weeks, blah, 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 is, has not happened and is, is is almost certainly not going to happen in any time soon. So his original war aims unachievable. Since then, he's shifted his war aims, of course. They'll always do that so they can... So don't have to admit what's happened. But the 300,000. Now, he doesn't care about that. We've seen that in the tactics that they've been using, most particularly in Rampak Moot and and lately in Avdivka. And he might take the view that whilst the 300,000 he doesn't care about, as long as there are more warm bodies behind them to take their place. So he doesn't care about the 300,000, but he might care about the next 300,000 or two or three or four, however many it might take. If Russia's not able to go forward or defend what they've taken and I'll go and go backwards, they risk defeat on the battlefield if Ukraine continues to adapt and be supported. But at what cost to the economy? If, if Russia can't keep putting people in, and we've seen these meat units, there's, there's more reports today from the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, talking about how Ranavdivka, Russia, are relying on these the Storm Z formations of, of just running at the, at the Ukrainian lines, often with no artillery cover often with no flanking units to protect your sides, you know, and just being killed in their thousands. I say Putin doesn't really care about that. But look at the economy. Now, the economically active, which is generally young, the money earners, they're not in Russia anymore. They are in the trenches being killed in their thousands. So who's keeping the economy afloat? Partial mobilisation last year was very unpopular, was possibly the closest Russian society has come to mass protests against Putin's leadership since the full-scale invasion began. And we know he's very loath to go for any more sort of formal mobilisation. The mobilisation by stealth and around the poorer regions of Russia has gone through the roof. We've seen them employing people from emptying the prisons and so on. So whilst he might not, he, he, he might care about the cost at the front end, he, he will care if those numbers dry up. And if those numbers mean that, that Russia, the Russian economy tanks, we heard from James Kilner yesterday about inflation up by 2% to 15%. The ruble is caning it against the, the dollar or being caned by the dollar. So yeah, th- these things might then might come into play. So it might be that that pressure comes to bear. Um, longer term, it's not going to happen overnight, but there is a, a possibility that that is going to become much more central to Russia's ability to wage this war because it's only really going in one direction. No matter how many artillery shells they get from North Korea and Shahids from Iran and what have you, if the people aren't there to keep the country going, then that is very significant indeed. I mean, it's an open-ended sort of thought. Welcome your ideas on that. But just from that figure of 300,000 today made me, made me think, well, what does that mean? Uh, but I'll take a pause there, David. 
Thank you so much, Dom. You picked up on a few things there that I think we're going to come back to, notably with our guest Francis Farrell later on Russian tactics around Avdivka and Joe Barnes now talking about some updates on the Russian economy. So, Joe, we've got two things to talk about, really. One is a bit of a, a roundup of some of the stories you've been looking at today in the diplomatic and political sphere. And then you've also interviewed Fedorov as well, which we'd love to talk about. But let's first get your thoughts on some of the stories that have, have reached your inbox. Joe Barnes. Just a slight comment on Dom's stuff there is, I don't know how accurate it is, it was a, a number and. Francis will probably be able to talk about it more, but there was a feeling around Kiev when I was last sort of there, so it's quite a few months ago now, that the number of which the Russian casualties reached that basically decision-makers in Kiev thought would become, basically would trouble them. And they put that number somewhere between 500 and 600,000 Russian casualties. So it's basically Ukraine has reached halfway to that target with this announcement today. Yeah, when it apparently reaches that sort of number, that's when they believe it will become untenable for Putin to carry on. But let's go to France, where a Russian tycoon, Alexei Kuzmichev, has been detained for questioning in connection with alleged tax evasion, money laundering, and for violating international sanctions. And this is uh, from a statement from the French Financial Prosecutor's Office. So searches took place on Monday at his home in Paris and in the Mediterranean VAR region, and that was reported by the French Daily Le Monde. So Kuzmovic is still being detained as of today, that's Tuesday, and ha- but has not been formally charged. So he's always been a person of interest. So last year, the oligarch's 27-metre yacht, La Petit Ousse, which I think translates from my very basic group of French to the Little Bear, And that sparked a legal battle between the authorities and the oligarch, who is one of the main shareholders of Russia's Alpha Bank. Let's go to Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister of Ukraine. He has said he is confident the US House of Representatives would back an additional fund for the Ukraine military. And this is a quote from Dmitry Kuleba. The main thing is the outcome. Are there enough votes or not? And at the moment, we have every reason to believe that there are votes in the US House of Representatives for the bill providing Ukraine with additional support. And he told that to a Ukrainian national broadcaster. He was speaking about the considerable political resistance to the bill's provisions and said it would be a sin for US politicians, for lawmakers, as they like to call them, not to use legislation to further their own interests. The US House of Representatives last week elected Republican Mike Johnson, a conservative with little leadership experience as the Speaker, which ended a turbulent three weeks where the House of Representatives was essentially rudderless and unable to carry out its basic duties. So Mr Johnson said last week that funding for Ukraine and Israel should be handled separately, suggesting he would not back President Joe Biden's $106 billion aid package for both countries. So that was one of the things that Apparently, Joe Biden and his administration thought they would do is club together Israeli and Ukrainian aid to basically make it harder for people to block. One of the ideas is many of the sort of the harder on the right wing of the Republicans, they would happily see money go to Israel. They're they're very fond of supporting Israel, but not so much Ukraine. So by putting it together would hopefully alleviate their opposition. On the business front in Russia, Vladimir Putin has made it harder for Western companies to exit Russia in an apparent bid to prop up the struggling ruble. Companies wanting to sell their Russian assets will either have to agree to make the sale in rubles or if they want to do so in dollars or euros, which would make mean they face delays or losses on the amounts transferred abroad. And that's uh, reported by the Financial Times. It comes as Moscow grapples with a 20% fall in the value of the ruble since the start of the year. It passed 100 rubles to the dollar in August, and that essentially forced the Kremlin to impose capital controls on exporters, requiring them to quickly convert 
the proceeds of sales into Russian currency. So a, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, he told the FT that the ruble had, has absolute priority, although one banker told the newspaper the effective new capital controls on Western companies was like applying a Band-Aid to gangrene, which is quite a, yeah, a, nice, uh, a nice view. The Russian ruble was strengthened to more than an eight-week high against the dollar as it was supported by Friday's interest rates increase, as well as the currency conversion obligations placed on exporters by the Kremlin. So yeah, it does go to speak about the woes that Russia is facing in economic terms. And just another one of their sort of plans to keep the economy afloat. They, uh, I remember back in the days when they were trying to sell Russian oil and Russian gas overseas, normally deals done in dollars, but because of sanctions, Russia made it so that anyone wanting to purchase its sort of natural gases and oils had to do so with rubles then that's essentially them trying to bolster their economy and i'll stop there and then we can go to the interview with Mikhailo Fedorov. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much, Joe. So you talked to Mikhailo Fedorov. We've spoken about him quite a few times on this podcast. He's the Minister for Digital Transformation, the youngest government minister in Zelensky's government. Um, why did you want to talk to him and what did he tell you? So I've been writing a hell of a lot about drones throughout this war, whether it be how DGI Mavics, that consumer purchasable drone from China that's been so effectively used to drop grenades or just simply as surveillance uh, kit. And But then as we've seen months pass, we've seen the progression of new technologies and an interesting drive of what it is to basically create a, a Ukrainian market for these things. And what's interesting about Fedorov, who's I believe is the youngest ever Ukrainian government minister, but I will have to refer back to my notes at some point on that. He has basically tried to get rid of dozens of Soviet legacy laws. Uh, lots of procurement rules have been eased. He's allowed, through the rule scrappages, allowed the creation of a free market for drones and basically military technology. So there's more than 200 Ukrainian companies are now involved in an effort to basically innovate and create Ukrainian products. So I think in, in my copy, I, I said that they're trying to basically find uh, Ukraine's answer to Barnes Wallace, the man behind the bouncing bomb. But I think another fair comparison would be that they've essentially created an environment which is likened to America's DARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is best known for its involvement in the creation of the internet, the uh, GPS uh, navigation, stealth bombers, um, lots of things that started out with military application, but then are known to have basically supported us throughout our civilian lives. I, I don't know a day that goes by without anyone listening is using the internet of some sort, GPS on our phones and stuff like that. But what was what was interesting for Mikhail Fedorov, he went on and said, you know, war starts with one level of technology and ends with a totally different level of technology, a great analysis. And so while Barnes-Wallace helped Britain to produce weapons like the bouncing bomb, which was sort of massively critical in the Second World War, so Mikhail Fedorov isn't pinning his hopes on the creation of a wonder weapon, but what he does want to do is he wants to create weapons and devices that will offset Russia's advantage in manpower, but also save the lives of his countrymen. And he said, we don't have many people and we value the lives of every soldier. So the latest sort of project he was working on, and he was happy enough to talk me through, was an army of robots basically trying to get autonomous machines to do things that Ukrainian soldiers shouldn't have to risk their lives with. One, he said that they were already testing on the battlefield, was an automated machine gun, which had an artificial intelligent aiming system that doesn't require human interactions. You Essentially, you drag the machine gun up to the machine gun post 
and then it takes care of the aiming and then it you can either remote control it or let it go on its own which one less soldier that has to risk his life manning a machine gun post that's good news for ukraine and then he pointed to the recent announcement around the creation of robots that can lay ukrainian mines but also dig up russian explosives that have been laid by russian forces in these vast minefields we hear about and you initially heard about ukrainian soldiers crawling on their hands and knees moving through foot trying to demine great if ukraine can develop a, a robot to do that and say so mikhail fedorov said we want robots that can absorb as much of the enemy's firepower as possible so we can be flexible and avoid losing the lives of our soldiers but there are also some more like fanciful and like technologically wonderful ideas that he he mentioned but they aren't away from the realms of actual possibility he was talking about self-driving vehicles that can deliver weapons ammunition other various supplies to the front line or evacuate wounded soldiers, because, again, these vehicles as soldiers drive to the front lines are being targeted by artillery, being targeted by Russian drones. So, essentially, there's enough Teslas in, in Kiev these days which have self-driving systems, so why can't they deploy a similar in a, in a van? And he also mentioned that successful tests had been carried out on the next generation of air defence sensors that combine secretive technologies, which we've agreed not to disclose, even though we know about them, as well as artificial intelligence. And it's essentially helping Ukraine create a map of their skies so they can watch and work out what missiles, what drones are being fired at them, where where are they destined for, which is interesting. But yeah, that's one of the fascinating things that, that Ukraine's trying to do. And there's going to be a fundraiser launched by United24, which is the platform established by President Volodymyr Zelensky to raise money. And Timothy Snyder is going to help raise money for this air defence sensor. But what's, I think, interesting about Mikhail Fedorov, away from the glitz and the glamour of these announcements, is he's one of many young Ukrainians that are really putting an influence and stamping their mark, using all thinking and moving away from the former Soviet legacy that Ukraine had and trying to think entirely different. So another one of those is the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, Krylo Budinov, um, who's like a 37-year-old who is heading many creative ways of getting back at the Russians and it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, I just think fascinating to see that how young people are playing such a pivotal role in bringing Ukraine forward. And I think a lot of people who haven't visited Ukraine wouldn't know how technologically advanced it is. Uh, so one of the big things that they always speak about is they have this all-encompassing app which helps people pay their taxes. It helps them track their parking fines and stuff like that and various other things all-encompassing one sort of go-to phone app. So it's just interesting to see how Ukraine is so technologically advanced and the guys that are driving this sort of effort to establish that industrial capacity using innovation to basically essentially, one, to help them win the war against Russia, but then, two, creating Ukraine into this sort of great hub for technology. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure we'll come back to this quite a few times. We need our Francis Sternley back to tell us a bit more about this. But I think, if I remember correctly, one of the overriding things from the British experience of innovating during warfare is most of the things you innovate don't actually work. But then every now and then you do stumble across something that can transform everything. So it'll be very interesting, I think, maybe later to hear a bit more from you about what you think are the projects they're working on that you think really could bear some fruits quite soon. And, and the others, which, as you said, potentially a little bit, bit more fanciful. But let's come back to that. It's a great honour and pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Francis Farrell from the Kiev Independent. Francis, would you just uh, reintroduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about your work and the Kiev Independent? Hi, yeah, it's great to be back. I think the last time we spoke was in the, in the depths of winter. Um, was it March? 
just coming out and a lot a lot has changed since then and we've gone through a lot so yeah it's great to be back and really always appreciate you guys commitment to covering this day in day out so yeah i'm still here still a reporter at the kiev independent where i would say ukraine's most prominent english language but homegrown ukrainian media outlet all online our audiences all over the world and yeah since we last spoke we've moved into a bigger safer office we've bought a generator in preparation for winter expanded still going from strength to strength and of course now it's as i'm sure you know very well it's a challenge for everyone to keep ukraine part of the global conversation when so much else is going on Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Francis. Could we start just by talking a little bit about the Russian assault on Avdivka? We've obviously been reporting on it sort of day in, day out. And I think we've been doing the daily updates, but haven't really yet stepped back to give a sort of a, a broader account of what's happening in Avdivka. What's your view and your colleagues' view of the battle there? What are the soldiers on the ground telling you? And could you throw any more light onto the tactics that we see the Russians use? Yeah, so if we step right back to October the 10th when when this all kicked off, there are a few kind of objective facts I think you can establish about about this attack, this offensive, but also about what it means. So it does seem to represent a general shift of Russia potentially regaining the initiative as autumn finishes and winter draws closer. And that happened last year as well. Remember, after the liberation of Kherson, immediately we started looking at Bakhmut, and that only got more and more intense. Um, so that was to be expected. I think over the summer, we know the counteroffensive was marked by very heavy fighting and brutal attrition on both sides. And I think many people may perhaps correctly assessed that Ukraine was really effectively attriting the Russian side even while on the attack, which is not what you expect. But some people took that a bit too far, I think, and started speculating that, oh, we've seen a Russian brigade moved from this sector to that sector. That must mean they're panicking, they're depleted, they're desperately holding on. But the offensive on Avdivka, the way they just threw these ridiculous quantities of men and equipment at Ukrainian lines with very little success so far just shows that I think they were fine when it came to reserves and offensive potential that they were holding back, preparing for an attack like this. I think in the end what surprised a lot of us is is just the tactics, as you said, the way that that this was really marked by almost a classic style human wave, tank wave, armored vehicle wave with very little intelligence, very little hope of success going straight into artillery fire, FPV drones. A lot of talk of uh, people told me about tanks running over their own anti-tank mines. And that was what really surprised a lot of people and did surprise me as well. And I think obviously it'd be wrong to say that Russia hasn't learned Uh, better tactics over 20 months of full-scale war. They have, and when they wanted to take just one key city last winter, uh, talking about Bakhmut, they had a, a plan that was brutal and costly, but it worked very well in the end over a long period of time. So for them to then go back from what worked in Bakhmut with these small, creeping, squad-sized assaults to just 
go full guns blazing and try and quickly surround Avdivka was a bit of a surprise. But in the end, just to, to finish off, I guess, the explanation for that is also pretty simple. They wanted a quick victory. They just went for it. They were hoping that given the amount of territory that they'd already taken on the flanks of Avdivka, how the city was basically surrounded already on three sides, they thought if they just threw enough tanks, enough armored vehicles, enough men at the flanks, they could just cut off that last eight kilometers or so in a couple of days. And as much as we like to ridicule the Russians and enjoy these videos of these columns getting blown apart, the Ukrainian units defending there have taken a lot of damage as well. Thanks so much, Francis, for that. Could I just ask before we move on, what kind of things are you hearing and your colleagues hearing from the soldiers on the front line as we start to head into winter with a summer of really heavy fighting, as you said, with lots of attrition on both sides behind us? What are you hearing from them? Yeah, if we start with Avdiivka in general, I think there is definitely an expectation that Russia will, having failed to take it quickly, they will probably just shift back to the same tactics that they did in Bakhmut, which was, again, slower, more systematic, just using these small infantry squads, a lot of artillery fire. Um, and we've heard already about the use of Storm Z battalions, which I guess is now the equivalent of what Wagner used to do, although they're probably not as effective. Uh, but in general, winter in this context, with Russia taking back the initiative, with Russia on the attack, it's never fun. Just Just sleeping in a trench for days on end is not fun. So always talking to soldiers, you can see that human aspect that I just really, I'm not looking forward to it on a personal level. I think when it comes to fatigue or morale, yeah, there, there are issues. There's building resentment when it comes to their lot as soldiers having volunteered and, and seeing potentially no end in sight for their role just being on the front line compared to the people, the civilians in the cities, those who've gone abroad and so on. But most of them, I, I do feel this very genuine, very stoic acceptance of, yeah, well, this is what we signed up for. So there's no looking back now and take every day as it is. A lot of people, they say, well, we don't look to the future too much. We don't think about winter. We don't think about the next year of war. We just take it day by day. You mentioned there, Francis, views on civilians. You mentioned earlier in our emails that you'd gone back to the front lines in September around Rikiv and you visited one village that had been liberated in the first days of the counteroffensive in June. What was your experience there? What did you see? Yeah, so I guess uh, what I saw there is, is kind of testament to how static the front lines are, how mined they are, and how heavy the fighting is. So compared to last year when we saw large territories liberated all at once in maneuver operations and the Russians withdrawing from large cities and so on very quickly, then you could really talk about scenes of liberation, scenes of people coming out with the flags and slowly processing what went on and the world press streaming in and asking about who was tortured and so on. Whereas here, it's the, these villages are just completely dead. Some buildings are still standing. Most, almost all of them are heavily damaged in one way or another. Because 
they were taken, but the front line hasn't moved much forward further. So there hasn't been a chance for civilian deminers from international organizations or the state emergency service to come in and start systematically demining the area so people can return. So the only demining that has been done has just been done by local soldiers who need to find a place to park their tank or their artillery piece. And so there are no civilians in these places. They're all gone. Um, in, in one or two villages, there might be some stubborn stragglers, but as far as I understand, there have been forced evacuation orders. They all have to leave, and there's just no life there. And it's just a testament to how slowly things are moving and the deep scars that this more static front line leave on, on the land and the settlements for a, a long, long time looking forward. Well, zooming out again from your visit, could you look back at the last sort of six months, and we've sort of touched on this in some of your answers, but it might be good to bring it all together and think about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. It might be too trite and blunt to talk about successes or failures. So would you talk a little bit about how it's developed, how it's changed, and also maybe what's happened compared to what people hoped and, and thought would happen? What, what are your thoughts on the idea of the counteroffensive? I mean, we talked about it week in, week out until it started. And maybe now is the right time to look back and think about how it progressed the, the way it did. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. And again, I think it's very likely that looking back on, on this year of fighting will probably take the Russian offensive on Avdivka as a bit of a marker to say that this is probably the, the end point, more or less, where we can put a bookend on the Ukrainian summer slash autumn counteroffensive. So yeah, looking back, I remember just before it started thinking about how intensely high stakes this operation was. I think the comparisons to D-Day in many ways were completely valid because the task at, ha at hand, what, what everyone expected in the best case scenario was obviously we knew there were defensive lines, but we thought that Ukraine could really break through to a point where it would be a more maneuver style battle, just as we'd seen in September previous year around Kharkiv, we'd see large areas liberated quickly. But, you know, again, I think comparing results and reality to expectations is a bit of a fraught exercise, because first you need to ask, what were your expectations from the beginning, from a military operation that was objectively one of the most difficult in history, especially at that scale, like going against an army that is notably very good at digging in, at mining large bits of land and has a much more capable air force and just not being given enough to deal with all of that. So yeah, for me, I didn't have expectations personally, but you know, visiting the area, uh, I visited the Robotina area, I didn't go into Robotina, but, but speaking with this 47th Brigade, which was, it was the keystone element of this counteroffensive, being given the Leopards and the Bradleys and the Paladins, hearing their stories, you really appreciate that what they did achieve was really incredible considering the circumstances. And, you know, you can get pretty sad about about the fact that they only made it so so far. But I think the way that it developed was a pretty logical almost result of of the way that Ukraine was set up in the first place for this counteroffensive. The the fact that Russia was given so much time 
to dig in. You know, Mick, Mick was talking about this yesterday, I believe, on your podcast, and the fact that Ukraine was only given what it was given. I mean, these Attackums missiles with the cluster munitions that were used to hit Russian helicopters in, in Berdyansk and Luhansk, like those helicopters have done so much work against the counteroffensive over the whole of summer. And there is no kind of rational political explanation or excuse that, that justifies not giving them to the Ukrainians before the counteroffensive. So I think we just have to take the lessons from what we've seen over the past few months, probably understand that going forward, neither side will have a lot of success with really major offensive operations, especially if the aim there is to somehow break through these very static front lines and take a lot of territory. And so we're going to see probably a much more attritional fight over the next year. And yeah, just to orientate ourselves in that new reality, put what's happened aside and and then go forward. Thanks so much for that, Francis. We're looking towards another winter of Russian strikes on uh, infrastructure and heating, etc. How is the population, how are the civilians preparing for that? And what's your sense of, of the mood in Kyiv at the moment? Yeah, it's a strange one, again, because obviously we have very fresh memories of what the last winter was like. But at the same time, we've had a very chill summer. I mean, I think in early June, there were still very regular attacks. We had the Kinjals and lots of Shaheds and other missiles. But since June, there haven't been very many attacks on Kiev. And it's it's always a lovely, beautiful summer here. So now that the temperature has changed, people are preparing for this. Businesses have definitely learned their lessons from last winter. Everyone who needs one has basically got a generator by now, including our own newsroom. We didn't have one last time. So we were always uh, going to certain underground cafes and so on. Um, When there were blackouts and we had these power stations, these big power banks we were working on, we had Starlink. So it's going to be more of that. Um, You know, people, again, are living life day by day. I think they, they understand on the most part that there's no point fretting about it until uh, about something that hasn't started yet. The best you can do is to be prepared. And yeah, people don't really know. It's hard to say whether it will be worse or not. I think most people think it will be worse because of everything that we've read about Russia, especially stockpiling not only missiles, but these Shahed drones potentially preparing to send them out at Kiev in, in swarms of of several hundred in one night. I think that's perfectly realistic. And it's clear that will probably overwhelm even Kiev's air defense. But it's just weird to think about it when it's not started yet. So, so we're all just kind of tensed up and, and waiting for it to start. Well, thank you very much for all of that, Francis. Joe Barnes, do you have any questions on anything we've heard? Yeah, I just want to ask Francis, and hello, thank you for coming on as always. What is the mood like in Kiev at the moment when so much of the world focuses on Israel and, and its war with Hamas? I, so I've spoken to a few Ukrainians that I regularly speak to, and they, they do notice sort of the the media interest is 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 dwindling at certain points in, in say, the UK and American press with a lot more eyes on Israel. So I was wondering what it actually feels like on the ground with that all going on. Yeah, I think that obviously, yeah, pe- people might 
resented a little bit, although people also have their own ideas about Israel and Palestine and who they uh, identify with better. And on social media, there, there are lots of people who are Ukrainians who are not resentful like what are you look, not looking at us for they're actually engaged in these other conflicts in the region and and kind of having some kind of idea that this is one one fight although it's far less black and white with Israel and Palestine of course um, but otherwise I think you know that there, there will be a certain delay I think panic or some kind of real worry might set in if things change significantly on the battlefield and it's clear that Ukraine isn't getting enough help and things start to turn quite dark potentially but until then there's not a, a continuous worry among the average Ukrainian city about how much Ukraine's being mentioned in western news and so on like people again they have their own problems they have their own potential worries about winter or worries about uh, family and friends who are on the front line people are still doing their donation campaigns for drones and cars and night vision and whatever else is needed so again day day by day here of course there is a concern there is a little bit of a worry about that Ukraine fatigue and so on. But until we see that really reflected on the battlefield, there's no panic so far. Francis, is there anything you'd like to talk about or think that's Im- it's important for our listeners to hear that we haven't mentioned and haven't spoken about yet? Yeah, I think, again, we all agree that we're in a, a very interesting, I, I would say, potentially very important phase in the war, potentially switching of the initiative and, and a, a pivoting of world attention and this all... Right now, we're all just watching Washington, I think, whether they can sort out their internal issues and commit to regular funding, at least until the election. And then what comes after is a complete mystery at the moment. But yeah, again, I would say when it comes to the politics and the politics of aid to Ukraine, I think it's just one thing that's worth remembering. People here have been very frustrated about this whole attitude of supporting Ukraine as long as it takes rather than supporting Ukraine enough to grant them an actual victory and the occasional public comments of, well, Russia Russia has failed, Russia has lost in their attempt to, to roll over Ukraine and destroy it. And instead of saying, well, Ukraine now needs to win and take back all their, their territory. And well, what does this come down to? What, come, what this comes down to is that we all know that Russia is in for the long game. We all know that they are increasing uh, production of missiles, of drones. In some areas of drones, they have the advantage. We know about all of the issues with ammunition on the Western side. That's talked about constantly on the front line while Russia has made a deal with North Korea, one of the biggest producers and users of art- artillery ammunition. So it's not to be taken for granted, I would say, even if we were just to be satisfied with Ukraine's survival as opposed to Ukraine's victory. That survival is not necessarily to be taken for granted when you still have Russia who is bent on destroying Ukraine at whatever cost. And that's something worth thinking about, maybe worth investing in a victory so that we won't have to invest 
in in the survival for for decades and decades to come. But I'm sure these are all topics that have been covered over and over again on here. But I just wanted to raise that again. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Francis. And I think it's very important to raise it, and you do so very eloquently. Joe Barnes, let's go to you for your final thoughts. And then, Francis, do tell us how we can follow your work and the work of your colleagues, and do tell us a little bit more about the podcast you've launched. But Joe Barnes, for your final thought first, please. So I don't really have a defining final thought, because I think Francis has really like spelled it out all incredibly well. But it's, I, I think the, the one thing that I look at when I, I look at how the counter-offence is wrapped up and is always the sort of the steps behind... The, the West has been with its aid. And actually, I think Francis spoke to it fantastically well when he mentioned the Attackums coming and doing such a good job against the helicopters that have done so much to help stop the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So it just, it always begs the question is, were these Western aid deliveries, whether it be tanks, I, I would say long range missiles more so, especially the Attackums and the cluster munition artillery shells, is if they had come months before, would we have seen an entirely different counteroffensive? I don't know, but there maybe we might have seen more ground gained ahead of the sort of slowdown into the winter months. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes. Uh, Francis Farrell, would you like the very final words? Once again, it's it's just been great to be to be back with you guys, and and great to have so many people uh, listening. And yes, uh, the Kiev Independent has a weekly podcast uh, called This Week in Ukraine super original name i know uh which we launched actually way back in um, april i believe march or april so there's plenty of of stuff going all the way back which you can listen to and yeah as always highly recommend checking out our site our youtube channel for the work that we're doing and because we certainly won't be leaving to we won't be getting on a plane to israel or, or anywhere else uh, once the story moves. You know, we're all invested in, in Ukraine's story, in Ukraine's fight, and, and we're not going anywhere, so, so do check us out. Thank you again. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.